You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so this is my first rep in the pulpit in several weeks. Um, and, and I think, so last week we got a wonderful message by our founding and planting pastor, Pastor Michael Collins, and then the week before that, we got to have one of our GC leaders, a teaching resident here at Mercy's Door, get a rep in the pulpit. Before that, we had Pastor Brett, and I was just remarking uh, to Sarah, or my wife, over the weekend that it is incredible that a year after we sent our lead teacher down to plant another church in Texas, that there are so many people that the Lord has provided to take reps in this pulpit that we're not at some lack for teachers, gospel teachers, in this church. It's a huge blessing, and it's a huge sign of health that he would provide that for us, and it's good. It's good for rest. It's good for multiplication. It's good for all kinds of things, and just thanking God for that, and, and thank you, everybody, who's been filling in this summer. Um, it's been meaningful uh, to me and to the church, and as I kind of come back into it, I was telling Sarah, I'm like, it's the, the Sunday preaching has been like a metronome for me, and without it, I just feel like I have no idea where I am in space and time, and I'm worried that I don't remember how to do this after three weeks, and so uh, bear with me, right? I'm a little nervous this morning, and pray for your pastor. Um, but listen, we are going left to right through the letter of First John, then we're going to do Second John, then we're going to do Third John. We did this after the Gospel of John, and what we're trying to do is understand what John understood. That's what we're getting after this morning. And to kind of calibrate everybody when you're hearing from a bunch of different speakers with different styles, so you can, it can be kind of harder to, to follow along with where we're going. John said that he was writing this letter to believers. He's writing it from Ephesus. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John from Ephesus. He moved there after Mary, the mother of Jesus, died, and he would die there. We believe that his tomb is, is there. And there in Ephesus, he said, I'm writing to you guys as your pastor. He oversaw a network of house churches in Ephesus. So with a pastoral heart, with love for the saints in Ephesus, he writes these letters with some assumptions that you confess the Christ, that you belong to him. He said the purpose of his letter was that you would know that you have eternal life and that you would have fellowship with with the other saints and with God the Father and the Son. And so I've been saying all throughout this sermon series, and I will for the rest of the summer, that the purpose of John's letter, above all others, is assurance for the saints. He wants you to know what you know. He wants you to know that he knows that you know. He wants you to really look at Jesus and to to get your confidence from him. And here he opens this section of his letter with a warning about the person who doesn't know. And it goes like this. Children, it is the last hour. We're going to talk about it. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so in this section of of John's letter, he introduces us to a group of people who were with us, but who were not of us, who went out from among the church in Ephesus in order that it would reveal that they were not, in fact, of us. He said if they were, they would have continued. 
And probably what's happening, if you've seen it happen, let's suppose that your best friend looks to your right or to your left in this church, somebody who's been confessing the gospel, somebody who's been walking with you in gospel faithfulness, renounces the faith or starts teaching some other doctrine or, or, or walks away, there's going to be a part of you that wonders if you're next. There's going to be a part of you that wants to know on what basis did he walk away and how can I know that I won't? How can I be sure that I am of us and not just with us. And I said that the purpose of John's letter is assurance, and so I'm praying that this section of the Bible will be assurance to you because it's John's intention. He said, listen, something awful is happening, and they are not of us. In fact, they never were. If they were, they would have remained with us. But how can you know who they are, and how can you know that you're not one of them? It's kind of one of the things we're getting after this morning. And to do it, I want to talk about really in three arenas, all areas of anointing, this word anointing, okay? I want to talk to you guys about the anointed one, Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you about his anointed ones, which is you. And I want to talk to you about the anti-anointed, the antichrists. And to get our, our, our our mind around this word anointing, which is so important in John's passage here, we have to understand where it comes from. Did you know that the name Christ means anointed one? Did you know that? You can raise your hand if you knew that. Some of you are like, I thought Christ was Jesus' last name. No, that was of Nazareth. Yeah. Christ means anointed one. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing, and Messiah comes from the root word for to anoint. And the Jews had an understanding of an anointed one of God who was to come, on whom all the promises that God made for his people were hinging, were riding, this anointed one. And so the Greeks took that word for to anoint, and they've got their own word for it, and it's Christ. And so we call Jesus, Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we're attaching his supreme name, the anointed one of God, to him. And this is Christ, our anointed one. Christ, our anointed one. And then in this passage, we're going to be introduced to this other class of people, his anointed ones. And that's going to be you, and we're going to talk about that. And so antichrist, if Christ means anointed, means that we're talking about the one who is against, anti meaning against, the anointed. Antichrist against the anointed. And so I hope to demystify the word antichrist for you a little bit today as well and actually show you that we're not really so much looking for a person as much as we are to be on the lookout for a great many people who are among us and have been among us since the writing of this letter. Now, I told you that, in, that John wrote this from Ephesus to his beloved churches in Ephesus. And he said here, to open up his letter in, in verse 18, he says, You have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Well, why would he say you have heard Antichrist is coming? What is he talking about? Well, you guys might remember, if you read the book of Acts, that Paul is actually the one who planted the church in Ephesus. So, I, I mean, they got to be the most blessed church in the world, right? To be planted by Paul and then pastored by John, like af after the fact, right? But Paul said to them, after he planted the church in Ephesus, when he was departing, he said in Acts 20, 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, 
and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And here John says in verse 18, you heard that the Antichrist, the Antichrist is coming. Now many Antichrists have come. Paul warned the Ephesian church that there would be wolves that come up from among them who want to have the disciples, who want to draw them away. Mark confirms the same in, in Mark 13. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, God's elect. John will write about it again in the next letter in, in 2 John verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And so there was this expectation that Paul had laid out, that the gospel writers had, had laid out, and that John is reminding them that there are a people from among us who are not of us, and that they go out into the world against the anointed, the anointed one and the Lord's anointed ones. And these we call the antichrists. And he says that because they are present in the church, that he knows something about timeline. He says, therefore we know, for, this is verse 18, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is how we know that it is the last hour, John says. And you're like, 2,000 years is a really long last hour, isn't it? And it is. And what I want to hold out to you guys this morning is that we are talking about a last hour, and then there is a last hour of the last hour. There is the last days, and then there is the last day of the last days. And you and I, church, are walking in the same hour, in the same age, the same day that the Apostle John walked in, the church age. The church age, where by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel advances on the face of the earth as God gathers his remnant to himself before the trumpet sounds, and he declares enough. So there is one event chiefly, that we wait for here in this last hour, and it is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this day, the last day, John wrote about in John 6, documenting the words of Jesus. He said this about that day, this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus testifies about himself, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so when Jesus talks about the last day, he talks about a day of his coming. He talks about a day of resurrection. He talks about a day of new life. And this is a day that John has in mind as he starts thinking about last hour. See, Jesus talked at length in Matthew 24 about what the world would look like as things pummeled towards that last day. And part of that was that there would arise these false Christs and these false teachers, these false prophets, these antichrists. And the spirit of the antichrist is in all of these who deny that Jesus is the Lord. 
but that there is one at the very end, the end of the end, the last hour of the last hours, the last day of the last days, there is one who will embody all of the characteristics of Antichrist, all of the characteristics of opposition to the Christ, but that that spirit is at work right now in this last hour as we march towards that last day. So John, seeing that from within the church arise these false Christs, these false prophets, these false teachers, he says, it's happening. Jesus talked about this. The last hour has begun. He saw it in his lifetime. And I'm grateful that he did, because you and I who walk in this hour, continuing in this last hour, might not have had all of these words penned about how to walk in this last hour had John not seen it for himself. This is not merely prophecy about what is to come. This is John saying, it is happening, and this is what we do. This is how we respond. It is immensely practical. And so let's see what he has to say. He says, we've got these antichrists, spirit of antichrist moving throughout Ephesus, moving throughout the church, people departing, people renouncing their faith, people teaching some other way. What do we do? Well, he says, but, verse 20, after speaking all of that stuff that really is not very fun to hear, but you, church, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now, what does it mean to be anointed by the Holy One, and what does it mean to us that Jesus himself is anointed. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is first kicking off his public ministry, he waltzes into synagogue in his hometown, and he pulls out a scroll of Isaiah, and he starts reading it, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, and then he reads all these promises attached to that person, then he rolls up the scroll, and he sits down, and everybody looks at him, and he says, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing on this day. Jesus sits there in synagogue making claim about himself that he is the anointed one prophesied in Isaiah. In Acts chapter 4, we read that the writer understood that David said in the Holy Spirit about Jesus that the kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord's anointed. Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus is the anointed one and Jesus is the holy one. He's the Holy One. John 6, 69, we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Did we not just read this? I think that James Earl Jones said it every week, right? Mark 1, 24, what have you to do with us, the demon says to Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Acts 3, 14, in in the sermon, he says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. In Revelation 3, Jesus says of himself, reigning from his throne, the words of the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Jesus is the anointed one of God. Jesus is the holy one. What does it mean? You don't care about this, but I've willed in my heart to write a book about this over the next five years, exploring what John understood in his gospel and his letters and the revelation about 
what I preached a couple of weeks ago about the hypostatic union of God, the two natures of Jesus, fully man and fully God. What did John understand about this? For the purpose of today's message, what you need to understand is that for Jesus to be anointed sounds at least like this, that Jesus is God, full stop. John understood this. We preached it hard for 15 months. And then Jesus, the second person of the one true God, did not, who had equality with God, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal in majesty and glory and power. Jesus, the second person of this Trinity, we read, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, being found in the likeness of men, emptying himself yet further into the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So one of the persons of the Godhead, the Son, Jesus Christ, empties himself of the glory which he enjoyed from eternity past and which he enjoys into eternity future. He empties himself, becoming in the likeness of men. And yet we read that in the person of Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him bodily. How did this Jesus who emptied himself of his glory walk every day on this earth in his earthly ministry by the power of God in the fullness of deity? Because he was the anointed one. You see, when he became human, in order for him to be fully human and fully God, he emptied himself and then took up his God nature again. In part, we see through, through a veiled face in his earthly ministry, but in whole, when he is resurrected from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit and appears glorified to the disciples, and he remains glorified today. Adam, why are you talking about this? Well, because if Jesus is not the anointed one, God himself, anointed by God himself, where all of the promises of God for his people can rest on his shoulders on account of the one that he is the chosen one, the perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly pure one. If that part's not true, it really doesn't matter, church, that you're his anointed one any more than it matters if I come and anoint you. You are my chosen one. He is not any of the things that the antichrists say about him, merely a teacher, some lesser deity. Whatever the cults teach, whatever the atheists teach, whatever, whatever anybody would teach you about Jesus, if it's not what you heard from the beginning, that he is himself God, the anointed one, fully God and fully man, your mediator, your great high priest, your king, if he's not that, then it does not matter that you are his anointed but you are his anointed, and he is that. And so if he's the holy one, and if he is the anointed one, what does it mean for us to be anointed? Well, let us see. Children, it's the last hour. You've heard the Antichrist is coming, and so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they weren't of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the Antichrist, or is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. Now, why is John going to talk about eternal life right after he talks about people departing from among them? Well, because of that great anxiety and insecurity that I'm telling you about, if you start watching your, watching your friends walk away from the faith, you're wanting to know, do I have eternal life? Or can I lose this thing? On what basis am I his? On what basis do I belong? How can I know? And John says, you know, and I know that you know. You know how I know that you know? But because you have the Holy Spirit. Because you have been anointed. Anointed with what? Anointed with the Holy Spirit. When we were anointed by the Holy One, by Jesus Christ, he anointed us with that which was the highest thing that he was anointed with. He said, I have been anointed in the Holy Spirit, and you now, church, have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about this a lot in my GC. I've been preaching it a lot. It's kind of the drumbeat of ministry this year for me. But I've been kind of asking this basic question, what makes you a Christian? And really trying to tease out, is it that, is it that we, we thought something correctly? Or did something more than that have to happen? And what I've been saying on repeat, I'm going to say it again on repeat, is this. That Jesus Christ living for you, dying for you, and raising from you needs to become more than simply a historical fact of things that Jesus did. Those things need to be applied to you. In fact, you need to be united with him in those things. His life must become your life. And his death must become your death, and his resurrection must become your hope of resurrection. But how does that happen? Through your anointing in the Holy Spirit. You are joined with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection by faith. And that faith is a free gift of grace that is applied to you by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit living in you is what makes you a Christian. Putting the old nature to death, taking up residence in you. And if you are looking at me and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, then we're probably talking about you sitting in a place where academically you're understanding some things that Jesus did, but you have not yet experienced these things being done for you. And that means that you need to repent and receive this salvation story for your actual self, not merely as historical fact. I'm not a Roman for knowing about Rome. I'm not a Christian for knowing about Christ. I'm a Christian because I've been adopted by God through my baptism in the Holy Spirit. And you, church, are adopted by God through your baptism in the Holy Spirit. And he is the confidence by which you walk. And he is how you can know that you will never, that you will never be lost. How can you be sure that you, like those others who have walked away, will not walk away? Well, because the Spirit is in you. Well, gosh, I don't know if the Spirit's in me. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Listen, the Antichrist says Jesus is not the Christ. The Christian says, yes, he is. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you belong to him. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit enabling you to know it. It is he who opens you to all knowledge. Jesus talked about this at great length in John 14, verse 23. Jesus said this. You'll remember this. I, I, I was on a roll back then. 
Jesus answered them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we we will come to him to make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. He continues two chapters later in John 16, 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I mean, what a promise. This is, where we, this is where we sing that it's good that he go, that the Spirit might come. We're talking about Jesus saying, I've still got many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when the Helper comes, he's going to testify to you all the truth. All the truth. And John apparently believed it, because look at what he's saying here. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Skipping down a little bit, he says, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise he made to us, eternal life. Skipping down just a little bit more, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him, the Holy Spirit, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I mean, I'm a preacher. I'm a teacher standing up here reading to you what John says, which is that you have no need that anyone should teach you, but that the Holy Spirit who abides in you, that the anointing that abides in you teaches you all things, that you have knowledge. Church, if there's anything that I can pull off this morning, I want it to be this, the power of the Spirit testifying with your spirit, Holy Spirit in me, talking to the Holy Spirit in you. Make it true today that you can understand this, that I am not the mediator between you and the knowledge of God, and anybody who marches among you claiming to be the mediator between you and the knowledge of God is lying to you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have been anointed by the Father by the Holy One. And Jesus said that all the things, all the things that he wants you to know about him, you will on account of your anointing. Now, I consider myself doubly blessed to be born in an age where I get the written word of God printed in my language and accessible, and I can open it, and I can know that these were the inspired words of the Holy Spirit and all of that. But I say to you that if you close this up, And you have the Holy Spirit. If you're a first century Christian, if you're in John's time and the printing press hasn't been invented yet and you're counting on the hand delivery of written scrolls and the New Testament still being written and you've got the verbal testimony of the apostles on the face of the earth and you've got antichrists on the face of the earth, John did not say, don't worry, in a hundred years or so, we're going to work this out because there's going to be enough copies of the Bible to, to, to fight this off. We're going to get that promise, and that's incredible. But they were not at lack. The first century church will worship with us in eternity on what basis? They can't quote a letter that hadn't been written yet. 
before they died? On what basis are first century Christians going to worship in eternity with people who could quote the whole Bible? It was the spirit of truth. The same spirit of truth that, that inspired the, the words of these scriptures for us is the same spirit of truth that moved throughout the first century on the foundation of the apostles' teachings. I mean, what is this other than the codification of the apostles' teachings? I say this delicately as somebody who loves my Bible more than anybody I know. Some of us who think we have the highest view of the Bible have the lowest view of the Holy Spirit. And some of us who say we have the highest view of the Holy Spirit have the lowest view of his diary. Right? These are his words. That's what makes this powerful. Not your fleshly ability to study them and recite them, but that these are actually sharper than any double-edged sword, that they are alive, that they separate joint and marrow. They bring you into knowledge of the Son. I also want to point out when I talk about this idea of there being all, of Jesus saying that the Holy Spirit will work in the church all knowledge, that John wants to point out that this is about abiding in what we received at first. What we received at first. You say, well, what is the role of a teacher? Like, why do you guys come here and listen to me teach? Well, you still should, because the Lord says you ought to. But am I teaching you any new thing? Have I ever stood up here in a ministry of innovation? No. This is a ministry of reminder, of confirmation, of affirmation, it is me reminding you that which you heard at first. It is John reminding you to abide in that which you heard at first so that when people march in, they say, no, I've got this really, 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 really special knowledge, and if you have that knowledge, then you can be sure. Then you can be saved. You know, I bet you never really thought about it like this. If you really think about it, what Jesus really meant was this. Listen, you guys do not need anyone to teach you. You need the Holy Spirit to teach you. And the only reason why you should ever listen to me open my mouth is because I've got the Holy Spirit and I'm teaching what the Holy Spirit penned. But like good Bereans, what you ought to do is when you start hearing my flesh speak, you have to spit that out and rebuke me. Maybe teach me. Because the Spirit himself who abides in us is our teacher. God promised something like this in Jeremiah 31. You guys probably know it. He said in, about this new covenant that would come in the future, the covenant that we're under today. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so we're in the former days where the people of God were only, were only as secure as their parents' ability to pass the words of God on down to the next generation. The people of God today are secure for eternity, for eternal life by the word that abides in them. 
You don't have to shake in your boots that maybe I'm not going to remember this thing that I learned when I was 12. No, what, what God says is that the word is going to abide in you because you've been anointed in the Holy Spirit. You are sure and secure. Now, I worry that even one person in this room would say that this ought to make me lazy about knowing the words of God because it's just going to happen to me passively. And that's not at any point what John is saying, and it's not what I'm saying either. See, what John says here is that we are to abide in that which we received from the beginning, but listen to this, as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, just as it has taught you, abide in him. See, there's an active way in which the Spirit is teaching us, and that, for example, there are times, if you've been a Christian long enough, that you look backwards and you realize that there was something three years ago that was totally sin, and you didn't know it was sin at the time. The Lord brings you into new knowledge, so to speak, of the application of the truth. And so we do progress in knowledge of the things of God, but what is the thing at the beginning that makes you a Christian? Very simply, that Jesus Christ is Lord and that eternal life is found by faith in him alone. It is the gospel. It is the pure spiritual milk of the gospel. The only reason why you have any appetite for the meat of other sound doctrine is that you are a child of God being nurtured by his Holy Spirit. And so you take that hunger and with all the more zeal, you pursue the knowledge of God because he has opened himself to you. In fact, I would say that until you're a Christian, there's not much sense at all. And some of the most wicked people on the planet are the greatest Bible scholars. What makes the Word of God come alive is when the Holy Spirit makes you alive. And so we do. Now, I want to talk to you about this ministry of reminder in order that I can justify the existence of my job. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Peter says this, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in them, the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Paul said the same thing in Romans 15 and verse 14. He said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, full of knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. See, the teaching ministry of the church is one that where we understand that you being set aside, sanctified by the Holy Spirit for all knowledge, that I can be satisfied to know that God has given you all that you need. And yet that can give me all the more confidence to say, and you say that it's good for me to go and minister this gospel by way of reminder over the saints for their comfort, for their growth. That's beautiful. But it's just not only for me. And so I wonder, church, what the application there is for you. Like, do you avoid the Bible in your private time? Do you wait until you're here? Because Pastor Adam, Pastor Brett, they really know, and they'll just tell me what it means. Do you believe that the same spirit that indwells the preacher indwells you? 
Do you believe that this word is equally accessible to you as it is to me? If you don't, you are very susceptible to Antichrist and their trickery. Because when they come along and they tell you that they've got some special insight and and you're not going to be equipped to be able to discern truth from error because you've just decided along the way that God only uses people to speak to you, that you can't speak to God directly through his written word. So how does the Holy Spirit teach us? I would say that there are at least these two ways. Through opening his word and through his conviction. He hasn't written everything that you could possibly need to know in here. And yet somehow when you find a wallet on the ground, you know what to do with it, right? As a Christian, why? Why? And when the Antichrists are marching among you, telling you all kinds of things, how can you discern the difference that this is not the gospel? Because the Holy Spirit in you will teach you all the things of Christ. You see, I believe that at Mercy's Door, if we are going to become a people who love our Bibles, who open them day and night, who seek to know the face of the Lord, it's only going to come because we believe that he lives in us, that he's anointed us, and that he brings this to life for us. And if we at Mercy's Door are going to teach the things of God to other people, and we're going to spread the gospel throughout Mascouda and Scott Air Force Base and the rest of the world, if we're going to do that, it's going to be because we believe that the Holy Spirit abides in us and that he has anointed us to do that. You're not equipped in your own strength, but you are equipped with God himself. What would that change for you? What I know is that the great error of a preacher, every pastor I ever met, and it's shown up in my life already, is we start to think that what God has asked us to do is to assist the Holy Spirit. That somehow our job is to speed things up for him, to be the Holy Spirit for you. That I don't know what that he's going to convict, so I need to convict. I don't know that he's going to encourage, so I need to encourage. I don't know that he's going to teach you, so I need to teach you. You need the Holy Spirit and me. You need the Holy Spirit in me. Oh. You have no need that anyone, any man should teach you. The Holy Spirit abides in you. And I've got nothing to offer you except the Holy Spirit abiding in me. How would this change the way you interact with your word? Church, are you reading this? I don't mean it hypothetically. Are you reading it? I'll tell you, I'm preaching it, and so it's a little bit different for me, but I've read 1 John like 20 times now just during this sermon series because I want to know it by the time I'm trying to teach it to you. You know what would feel really good? If I knew that you guys had read it 21 times so that if I'm wrong, you could be like, Pastor, that's not what he said. Your mediator indwells you, church, and that's my big, my big point for you this morning. And so you've got the anointed empowering his anointed to detect the anti-anointed when they are among us. And I guess I have just one more word of warning for you guys. There's a popular movement among us today. Um, called deconstructionism. It's more popular on the coasts. I've got a bunch of friends on both coasts, and so I see it a good bit. And deconstructionists, they've got all the podcasts, and they're cool, and they'll tell you, like, that it's it's like a badge that you can wear to say, like, I used to be a Christian, but then I really thought about it. 
and that somehow by thinking more deeply that, that the natural byproduct is that you're going to walk away from what you heard at first. But John talks about the Antichrist doing this, and he says you must abide in that which you heard from the beginning. And that which you heard from the beginning, the basics of the gospel are a solid rock. It's the, it's the teaching upon which all the rest is built. And if, if deconstructing means taking all these man-made traditions that have been heaped upon you and casting them aside, by all means deconstruct. But I would say that's really called reforming, and you should do that all the time to get back to the words of Scripture as your foundation of truth. But if in order to deconstruct, to really understand what you believe, you have to leave the source of truth and use outside sources to really make sense of what you think and what you believe, then you are following the teachings of Antichrist. And I want to tell you, they want to have you. Antichrists are not neutral. Nobody's neutral. They want to have you. And the assurance from John for the church is if, he's if his spirit, if his anointing is in you, if it abides in you, you're good. He says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but you have no need that anyone should teach you. He's like, all of these warnings are for those people who don't have the anointing of the spirit. And my concern is, is there even one person in here this morning where I'm speaking and you're like, he's speaking to me. Because if you don't feel more confidence that the Lord is in me and, I'm, and, and, and all that, but instead you're like, none of this is driving, and I think that John is speaking to me, I'm writing these things about those of you who, who are trying to deceive you, go to the Lord. Confess that to him. I've, I've only academically ascended to this thing. I'm just one good-sounding argument away from walking away from this thing. It wasn't you who came into my life. It was just a good argument. Somebody made a compelling case, and I'm a more compelling case away from walking away. Guys, if that's you, rejoice that you've become aware. Repent and ask him. You need to show me the truth. So we've been anointed, but was it just for detecting false teaching? No, it was not. It was for confirming the truth. This is my last point, I swear. You were anointed for sight. Revelation chapter 3. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the, sh and sh and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see to anoint your eyes that you may see. Much like the blind man in John 9, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash, and I went and I washed, and I received my sight. Not sight just to see what error is, but sight to see him, to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is John 4, 23. The hour is coming and now and is now here where the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Church, your baptism in the Holy Spirit, your anointing in the Holy Spirit, your anointing into the truth that you might worship in spirit and truth is so that the veil would be dropped and you would behold the glory of God, the very thing which used to threaten to kill you. You can now bask in the warmth of the glory of God because you have been enabled to know him. You've been made his son. You've been made his worshiper. 
He's dropped those scales that you might see the truth in order that you might worship him, to see his goodness. And so just a side note, if you take from this like that now I've got to be on the lookout for Antichrist and that's the main thing, what I would say is you're going to spot them a mile off if you're looking at him because they won't look like him. Look to him. Dwell with him. It's why he did it. And I want to say to you one last thing, that in gospel community, the number one thing that I have seen uh, that has been a ministry to the people that, that the Lord has put in my life to care for me and for me to care for them is that when I can't see God, when I cannot see His goodness, when I cannot see the Spirit, when I cannot give appropriate credit to what is Him and what is me, what is Him and what is man, He's given us the body. He's given you a pastor. He's given you a a gospel community group. He's given you a family of worshipers. And there's nothing like when I come up here on Sunday mornings and I hear you guys singing his praises and testifying the truths about him that ministers to my soul. We need one another, more specifically, the Holy Spirit abiding in one another in the church to remember that we weren't saved to be rogue Christians. We were saved into a family, adopted into a family. And if we neglect the gathering, if we neglect being with one another, then we're walking away from a really good goodness. We need the Spirit in each other, like John is doing here, to encourage and point us back to the truths of eternal life. So church, I leave you with this as I pray. The anointed one has anointed ones, and he says it's you. He filled you with the very spirit that drove him in this life, by the very spirit that rose him from the dead, the very spirit that unites you with him. He's anointed you. So don't be afraid in the presence of false teaching. Know that God is with you and has given you ears to see it, and flee back to that which was from the beginning, and trust that the spirit who taught you that is teaching you all the things of Christ because Christ said he would and that the assurance for you is eternal life and your message in the world is eternal life for all who cast their faith in him. Let's pray.